Open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 5. We'll begin in Luke chapter 5. Our primary lesson will be in verses 1 to 11, but I also will be reading a little bit from Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to put a finger over in Matthew chapter 4, we'll also be looking at verses 18 to 22. The exact same passage, practically, is in Mark 1, 16 to 20. So I won't bother reading Mark because Matthew tells us exactly what Mark does. So just get in Luke 5 and Matthew 4. And let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful resurrection season that we have just gone through. Thank you for every woman who is present today. I pray you will bless her for for having been here. We know, Father, that Proverbs tells us that The one who wins souls is wise. So I would just ask that you would help us to learn through a close look at your holy word this morning. Help us to learn the basic principles of fishing, fishing for men, so that we can better know how to be effective, committed soul winners for your eternal kingdom. We realize, Lord, that our great enemy is a very wise fisher of men, and he has a whole lot more experience than any of us have. He's very craftily and skillfully knowledgeable about how to use the temptations of this world as his bait to ensnare men and their eternal souls. So teach us, Father, through this lesson, the basic principles of being good fishermen. Teach us also the urgency of the hour in which we live and the the great need that there is for willing, faithful, committed, cooperative, patient, Holy Spirit-sensitive fishermen for the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I just pray, Lord, for clarity of mind and speech and sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit as we expound upon your word for Christ's glory. Amen. The next step in the Lord's earthly ministry involved the calling out of his disciples for service, at least the first four of his disciples for permanent service. You know, after their positive response to the call of salvation, which is what we saw in lesson number 13, which was entitled The Savior's First Six, after that initial call to salvation, the Lord's first six disciples accompanied him to Cana, where he performed his very first miracle, which was what? Changing changing water into wine. And then together with him, they went to Jerusalem, where in wondered amazement, they watched him single-handedly and very authoritatively cleanse the temple. And then after he cleansed the temple, he went throughout Jerusalem and performed many miracles. They weren't recorded for us, but we know that he performed many miracles, and the disciples watched all of that. Then the six men were also with the Lord in the Judean countryside as they were involved in baptizing the many people who responded to the message of repentance. They also accompanied the Lord Jesus in Samaria. Remember when he must needs pass through Samaria, and they stayed with him there how many days? (laughs) Two days, and watched uh, as many Samaritans came to faith in Jesus Christ. When the Lord, however, departed from Samaria and went to Capernaum of Galilee, after having first been rejected by 
his own people in his hometown of Nazareth, it appears that those first six disciples who, remember, were all Galilean, and now they're back up in Galilee. You know, he went to Capernaum after he was almost, they tried to kill him in Nazareth. So they're back home. They're back up in Galilee, and it appears that they returned to their previous lives, their, their homes and their, um, their occupations. Perhaps after being in Cana, Nathaniel just stayed there because that was his hometown. And um, the two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John, we know were from Bethsaida, which was located very near to Capernaum. You see, now the Lord is in Capernaum in our study. And they just lived very close by uh, uh, in Bethsaida, which was also on the Sea of Galilee. And remember, what had they been before they followed the Lord for a year? They had been professional fishermen, which in first century Israel was a very lucrative business because fish was a main food, uh, it was a staple food item. People ate a lot of fish. They ate it uh, fresh, they ate it pickled, and they ate it dried. But I guess they didn't eat it like Southerners, like fried. (laughs) When I was looking that up, it never said they ate fried fish, but they like it dried, pickled, and fresh. Furthermore, fish was used as a fertilizer. So, you know, fishermen back in that day, they weren't rich, but relatively speaking, they were were well-to-do. So once back in Galilee, Peter, Andrew, James, and John returned to their former occupation. They returned to fishing on the Sea of Galilee. You see, I don't, I don't know how many people really realize this. Although they had been called to faith uh, in, in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, and that's what we looked at, you know, back in Lesson 13 when they were first called out to him, you know, when John the Baptist first pointed to him as the Lamb of God. A lot of people don't realize that they, they were called to faith, you know, that was their call to salvation, and they followed the Lord for about a year, but then when he's back up in Galilee, they went back to their their occupations. So um, as we now look at Luke 5 verses 1 to 11 in a lesson which I've entitled Basic Principles of Fishing, we're going to discuss the second phase of the calling out of the disciples, which is their call to service. In these verses, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus uh, called on Peter, Andrew, James, and John to leave behind their labor as fishermen to become instead fishers of men. See, when they followed the Lord for about a year, they were just temporarily his disciples. They wanted to learn from him, etc. But they had every intention of going back to their, their occupation as fishermen, which is what we see they're doing in the verses we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> but so then he comes to them, and now he calls them to, service, to permanent service. Now, over in Mark 3, verses 13 and 14... There is given yet another phase. We won't get to this in this lesson, but I'm just telling you the various phases of the calling out of the Lord's men, the, the 12. There's giving an, given another phase because in that passage, he appointed 12 specific men from the many people who at that time were following him, learn from him. He, he chose just 12. You know, there was a lot of men and a lot of women following the Lord, but... In Mark 3, he picks, he chooses just 12 of them to be his apostles. So you see, first of all, 
They were disciples. He had many disciples. The word disciple in the Greek literally means learners. They were, they were following him to learn from him. It's a word which does not carry the idea of authority. They were basically just learners. But when he chose the 12, he chose them to be his apostles. And the word apostle in the Greek means what? Sent ones. And it does carry the idea of authority. What it says in Mark 3, verses 13 and 14 is this. And he, meaning Christ, goeth up into a mountain. Of course, there he prayed about this decision with his father. And calleth unto him who he would. And they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them. See, they are the sent ones. They are apostles. He sent them forth to preach. And then the twelve men that he chose are listed for us. Well, that was the third phase. Then the final phase in the calling of the twelve is recorded for us over in Matthew 10, verse 1. And it says, And when he, Christ, had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. So you see, having summoned his twelve special men, the fourth stage involved him giving them power. And authority to do what? To cast out evil spirits and to heal all manner of sicknesses and disease. So the four steps in the calling out of the 12, we call them sometimes the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, is this. First of all was their call to salvation. And that's what we saw back in John chapter 2 and um, in lesson number 13. It, we could Another way we could term it is their acceptance of Christ. And then there's the call to service, which is what we're going to look at this morning in Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. I see that says 10 to 11. That's a mistake. 1 to 11. And that was their action for Christ. They're now, now going to go into action, into service for Christ permanently. He's calling them to be permanent. Of course, we know after his resurrection, where do we find them again? Fishing on the Sea of Galilee. All right. But uh, the third call is they're called to be sent, sent ones. That's their apostleship under Christ. And then the fourth call is uh, to stick with the S's. I called it their call to signs. They're, they were given power, authority in Christ. I believe that's in your notes. Some of you are writing fervently, but I believe it's in the book, isn't it? Isn't it in the book? Okay. All right. Now, what, will we, what we will be focusing on in our next series of lessons, just so you know where we're going for the remainder of this year and then on into next year, you probably noticed if you looked ahead at how many lessons are in the book, we're not going to be able to finish. We'll be looking at, the, in the next series of lessons, the Lord's supreme authority over all aspects of life. Now, in this lesson, we're going to look at his supreme authority over nature in this, the miracle of the great catch of fish. We sort of already saw his authority over nature when we saw him turn water into wine as well. Then in Lesson 21, we're going to be looking at his authority over demons. This will, Lord willing, be next week. We'll be talking about demons as he heals the demoniac in the Capernaum synagogue. And then we're also going to talk about his authority over sickness as he heals Peter's mother-in-law. I have a question for you. Was Peter married? He must have been. He had a mother-in-law. You cannot get a mother-in-law unless you're married. All right. (laughs) 
Lesson number 22, we're going to be looking at his authority to preach as he goes and preaches throughout all of Galilee. Then we're going to talk about also in Lesson 22 his authority over defilement as for the first time, at least recorded first time, he heals a leper. Then verse 23, we're going to talk about the Lord's authority to forgive sin. And that's a fantastic miracle. It's one thing to heal people, but to forgive sin, who alone can do that? God, right? And we'll look at that. That's the account of the healing of the paralytic who was, remember, lowered by his friends down into the Lord's presence. Then we'll also talk in Lesson 23 about his authority over men. And there is where we will finally see Matthew join up with the group of disciples. What was Matthew's name previous to Matthew? Levi, right. And then in Lesson 24, we're going to talk about his authority over tradition. And uh, that's an exciting lesson. We'll have to save it for the fall. But uh, did the Jews have a problem with tradition? Mm-hmm. Boy, did they ever. Do you think we might have a problem with tradition? <laughs> yes, we do. Probably more than any of us even realize. And then in Lessons 25 and 26, we'll talk about the Lord's authority over the Sabbath. And this was the thing that really irked the Jewish religious leaders, is that he dared to heal people and, and do things on the Sabbath day. And we'll talk about the fact that he is, does not only have authority over the Sabbath, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? So that's where we're going. Now let's talk about, this is going to be a little bit of a different lesson in that I'm not really going to be going um, verse by verse as I usually do. I'm going to read the whole passage for you and then we're going to talk about some different principles. Uh, what did I do? There's my outline. We're going to be talking about these various principles. We'll talk about the principle of Christ-like imitation, the principle of appropriation, the principle of submission, the principle of cooperation, and the principle of sacrifice. I'm hot, so excuse me. Hey, you want to take it where, with your health skirt? <laughs> All right, so let's, let me read for you uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and then I'll also read Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22. Starting with Luke 5, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, Christ, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. Who's that? Peter. And prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Aren't you glad to see Peter started off at least being obedient? <laughs> he was a good boy in this lesson. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. Is it proper to say fishes? I guess so. <laughs> the Bible says it. A multitude of fishes and their net break, and they beckoned unto their partners. And who do you think their partners were? James and John. Andrew is probably with Peter. Well, we know he is. We'll see that in the Matthew account. So Peter and Andrew, remember their brothers, are together, and now they call over to their partners who were James and John which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him 
at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. See there, we find out. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. All right, now if you will go please to Matthew chapter 4, I'll read verses 18 to 22. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Okay, now you can go back to Luke because that's primarily where we will be. The Lord's ministry in Capernaum, now he's in Capernaum of Galilee, had attracted enough attention that Luke 5.1 tells us that the crowd around him was so large that they were pressing upon him. In other words, they were just all around him. It's hard to talk to a group if they're just surrounding you, correct? And uh, they, were, they were surrounding him. Why? What does it say in Luke 5.1? This is a good thing. They were pressing around him because they wanted to hear the word of God. That's good, isn't it? I mean, that's commendable for them. They wanted to hear the word of God. However, as I said, there wasn't enough space for Jesus to stand apart from the people in order to uh, give them the word of God, to teach them. So seeing two empty ships with the fishermen nearby washing their nets, he entered into one of those ships and... Luke tells us that the ship he entered into belonged to Simon Peter, who then took the Lord out a little bit from the shore where he could then speak to the people using the ship or the boat as his pulpit. Now, I don't know. I would imagine he was a little bit further than in that picture from the people. But that way, you know, they were at at least a distance and he could could, uh, speak to them and be heard by everyone. Now, uh, it can get a little confusing, the passages that I just read to you, so let me give you an idea, perhaps, of the chronology here. What I read in um, Matthew's account, which is identical to what Mark also tells us, is perhaps what happened first. In other words, the Lord, you know, let's see what it says back there in Matthew. The Lord was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, and, he, and they were casting their nets out into the sea. We'll talk about what they were doing there. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then he went a little further, and he saw James and John, and they were with his, their father. And what were they doing? Mending the nets, and we'll talk about that also. And he called to them, follow me. And they immediately left their father and their nets and their fishing business. And they also followed him. And then what commentators suggest is that as the... Four of them are walking along still further of the Sea of Galilee. The people begin, you know, the crowds begin to build around Jesus. And that is, and they're pressing upon him. And that then is when he enters into one of the fishing boats sitting there that belonged to Peter. And he launches a little bit away from the shore and teaches the people. So that, and that's the chronology which I believe probably fits best. All right. Now the Sea of Galilee is kind of a heart-shaped 
C, if you, you know, see the shape there, kind of a little bit straight on one side and then bulging out, so uh, kind of has a harp shape to it. And actually, because of that, it was called in the Old Testament, it was called the Sea of Chenareth, because Chenareth in Hebrew means harp-like. So that was another Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot of different names for the Sea of Galilee. I think we read one of them in, yeah, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It's called the Lake of Genesaret. And that's because there is a city right there on the Sea of Galilee, which is called Genesaret. And Genesaret means Garden of Riches. This whole area is, is very rich in soil and and in fish in the sea. It's just an absolutely beautiful, peaceful place. I have been there. I have a picture. Here's a modern-day picture of the Sea of Galilee. As you can see, it's just beautiful. Just really, really a peaceful... And you, you can understand being there why the Lord would want to have spent as much time there as he did. All right, Josephus tells us that on any one given day... There were normally about 250 fishing boats out on the, uh, on the lake or the Sea of Galilee. It also called, does anybody know the other name for this? There's, yes, the Sea of Tiberias. And that was named for, um, they called it that because of Tiberius Caesar. So there are four different names for the Sea of Galilee. We'll be calling it the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so he said on any, any one day there was about 240 fishing boats out there, and that doesn't even include the people, the men, the fishermen who would be standing on the shores, you know, just casting out hook and line poles, or those casting out nets in the, in the shallow waters. That's just, inclu- that's just talking about the fishing boats that were actually out on the, on the sea. Now, the sea is really a lake. You do understand it's not a sea like an ocean. It's, it's really a lake. It's approximately 8 miles wide by 13 miles long. And it's situated about 700 feet below sea level. Below sea level. And it varies in its depth from about 80 feet to 160 feet deep, which is in, in the middle, in the center of the lake. Now, there were three main methods of fishing used at the time of the Lord Jesus and they're still commonly probably used today over there. There was, of course, the hook and line type of fishing, where a fisherman will uh, cast out his fishing line. Now, I am not really an authority on fishing. <laughs> I am not what you call a fisherwoman. So I had to talk to my husband about this and do a little research, and I think you'll be impressed with how many pictures I have of, of fishing and fish and boats. I, I was just, you know, as I started collecting them, I said, wow, I didn't know I had this many pictures. <laughs> so I'm going to use all of them. But uh, one type of, of fishing was the hook and line. And, of course, these men here I know are fly fishing. They're not using a rod and reel, but they didn't have rods and reels back in Jesus' day. So I guess they just use poles with lines and, you know, put the little hook on the end and then the bait, etc. But you all know what that. How many fish do you bring in using hook and line fishing? One at a time. Okay, so that's one at a time kind of fishing. Then another method of fishing on the Sea of Galilee was and is net fishing. The fishermen in their boats cast out large nets into the shallow waters. They didn't go out into the deep waters. They stayed in the shallow waters to do this. In fact, sometimes they didn't even go out in boats. Sometimes they just cast the nets standing uh, in the shallow water (laughs) without boats. And then when they sensed that there was a a number of fish 
entrapped in their nets, they would haul those nets onto the beach where they would separate the fish, you know, the ones that they would keep from the ones that they would cast back in to grow larger or the ones that they just didn't want. You know, they would cast them back into the, into the lake. So that's net fishing. Now, let's flip over real quick to John chapter 21. You know, there were two times that there was a, a miracle catch of fish, a great miracle catch of fish. One was the one we're studying about now during, during the Lord's earthly ministry, and the other great catch of fish occurred when? After his resurrection. Right. When they went back fishing, <laughs> they went back to being fishermen. And uh, now this is a, a, a post-resurrection miracle. And if you'll look at John chapter 21, this, th- we find out that this is an example of net fishing in shallow waters. All right, so look with me. Let's see, starting at verse 5. It says, Then Jesus saith unto them... Uh, all right, he's walking again along the Sea of Galilee, and they're out there fishing. So he says, children, and they were acting like children, so he called them children, have ye any meat? But it was an endearing term when he called them children, all right? And they answered him and said, no. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. Now, they were out in a boat, but they were in shallow waters, and that's why they were able to talk to him. You know, he wasn't at that great of a distance from them. And they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Great miracle again. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who's John, saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. Now, he wasn't naked, naked. Because remember, he was pretty close to the shore, and that wouldn't be too appropriate, would it? But they would wear, like, um, fruit of the loom. It wasn't, you know, it was just a little, a loincloth. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. A loincloth. <laughs> and he cast himself into the sea. In verse 8, and the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land. Now, that's what tells us they were net fishing. But as it were, they were 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes. Or I just wanted you to see. Now, it is interesting. I'm not going to get into it in this lesson. But if you will take the time to compare the two miracle catches of fish, the one that we're looking at today during his earthly ministry and the one we just read, his post-resurrection miracle of the great catch of fish, you'll see there's some real, a lot of comparisons, but there's some real obvious contrasts. For example, in the miracle after his resurrection, the net is full of fish, but it does not break. And there's significance for that. Why does he have it breaking in this one and it doesn't break in the other one? And the other difference is that in this miracle we're looking at in Luke chapter 5, we aren't told how many fish. Just a great catch of fish. And because of the, the fact that the nets broke in various places, some of the fish obviously got away, right? But in the post-resurrection miracle in John chapter 21... The nets don't break, and we are told exactly how many fish they caught. How many? Who, who knows? 153. There's significance in all of that, so, so, so think about it. All right, the third type of fishing involves a large dragnet to catch fish. Dragnet or gillnet, because the, the fish would actually get caught in the net by their gills. Gillnet fishermen would take their boats out into the deepest part of the water where a large dragnet 
would then be strung between two or more boats, although dragnet fishing can also be performed with just one boat. You don't have to have two or more, but it's a whole lot easier if you have two or more boats. And you throw the net out between the two of you, and then when you sense that it's full of fish, you know, you cooperate together to bring the net in. But my husband informed me that you can do dragnet fishing with just one boat, but that those fishermen have to kind of circle around the net, and they have to work a lot harder to do that. Now, in the account of of Luke chapter 5, the disciples use drag nets. Now, how do we know this? We know this because the Lord told Peter in verse 4 to do what? Launch out where? Into the deep and let down the net. So we know that in this miracle, they're using drag net fishing, whereas in John chapter 21, that miracle, they were using just the regular shallow water net fishing. Now, the Lord's miracle of Luke chapter 5 was really a parable in action to teach his disciples how they could become efficient fishers of men or evangelists or soul winners. Were they going to become soul winners, evangelists? Yes, they were. The greatest ones this world has ever seen. He was teaching them, you see, through this miracle, the importance of obeying his word. He wanted them to, un- to understand the importance of stepping out in faith even into the deepest and most dangerous waters where a storm could arise almost instantly and on the Sea of Galilee that can happen because of the way the the air pressure works going over the mountains there and can hit that sea and it could be calm one minute and a storm the next. And we see that, don't we, as we read through the Gospels that that happened on several occasions. So he wanted them to learn that they were to obey, step out in faith and obey his word even in the most dangerous of waters. He wanted them to be willing to even risk their lives if it was necessary for a catch. And were they willing to risk their lives? Yes, they were. For their future ministry, he wanted his men to remember, you see, by way of this symbolic illustration in this great catch of fish, that even sometimes against all human reasoning, simple obedience to his commands is required. Do we always understand the Lord's commands? No, but does that mean we're, we're not to obey them unless we understand them? Unless they seem to us logical? No, we're to obey them regardless. And their obedience, which I'm happy to report they, they did obey in this account, their obedience brought to their great amazement great results. Now the miracle of the great catch of a fish here is the third recorded miracle in our life of Christ's study. And it was actually a foreshadowing of what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. When Peter, now remember, in this story that we're looking at, who's the main character besides the Lord? Peter's the main character. On the day of Pentecost, it was Peter who stepped out in faith, you know, cast his net out in faith by preaching the gospel message for the first time. And he did so, we could say, in very deep and dangerous waters because the Jewish religious rulers, had, and they were there, and heard this, they had just seen to it that Christ was crucified. So for Peter to cast his net out with all them standing around was going out, launching out into deep and dangerous waters. But he cast out his net, he put his own life at risk, and what was the result? Another great and miraculous catch of fish, souls. 3,000 souls were saved, were added to the kingdom of God on that day. As a Christian, 
is willing to set out in greater faith and obedience into areas of greater depth of commitment, there will um, most likely be a greater cost. You know, when we step out, and another way we can look at this also, this story, it's symbolic, you know, is as we're willing to get deeper into the word. You know, the water in the Bible is a symbol of the word of God. So as we're willing to get deeper into the word and as we are willing to get deeper into our commitment and our obedience for the Lord, I think proportionately the Lord will give us greater catches of fish, but also the greater is the 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 uh, cost to us, a greater cost. He, we may be he he or she may be asked to pay a sacrificial price for the souls that we're privileged to bring in. After all, the storms rage much stronger upon those who are out in the midst of the battle for souls. And why is that? Because Satan, Satan is out there fishing as well. <laughs> and he, he is a fisher of men also. It tells us in 2 Timothy 2.26 about the snares of the devil. He's got big, huge dragnets where he tries to ensnare men's souls. And he casts his bait of worldly temptations in exactly the same places that the Christian is attempting to fish. And remember now, he's an expert at being a fisherman, isn't he? He's got a whole lot more experience at this than you and I do. And so we are, you know, we're out there fishing against the devil, and he knows how to make his bait look a whole lot more appealing than ours. You know, make it so sensual and alluring, you know, compared to the cross of Christ. So he's an expert, and we need to be aware of that. And it would be more, it's more dangerous. for The further out we're willing to go, the more dangerous it is. In the depths of the sea, the Christian will at times be knocked about by those storms and, and waves. Some have, many actually, millions have even lost their lives out there. But for those who are willing to get away from the safety of the shore, you know, where others are just standing there using a hook in the line, and they're, they're pretty relatively safe, right? Standing on the, maybe even in a little bit of shallow water, casting out. Because if a storm arises, what can they do? They can run to shore real quick. Of course, and, and, and they're still good, I mean, because at least they're bringing in one fish at a time. But when the storm comes, whoosh, they can just get out of there. Same thing even with the net. Now, the net fishermen are catching more than one at a time. They're catching several schools of fish. But still, when the storm comes, what can they do? They're close to the shore, and they can get in in a hurry. So where is it the most dangerous? When you launch out in the deep, the dangerous waters, but... And, you, and you're willing to risk your own life because the storm can come up real fast. Satan's out there doing most of his fishing. But the result is even a greater, a miraculous catch of fish. All right, when the Lord Jesus called his first disciples to service, he was, what he was doing was gathering together the first fish-catching crew of his church. Those men were the first of the original band of evangelists to whom Christ gave the Great Commission. And if you don't know where the Great Commission is, which I'm sure you do, it's over in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where we're told to go into all the world and teach you know, and make disciples and baptize, etc. 
They were the first fishers of men. They were the Lord's original partners in the finishing, uh, finishing, the fishing business. See, the Lord wasn't only a carpenter. He was also a fisherman, a great fisherman. Now, of course, you know the Lord Jesus could have won people and still could be winning people to himself by himself, right? I mean, he certainly has the power and the authority to do that. But that was never his plan from the very begin- beginning. He determined that he would use human instruments to win other humans to himself. And why do you think he does that? So that we might get a blessing too. I mean, if he just totally brought any, everybody into the kingdom without using us, bypassing us, we would miss out on all those wonderful blessings. And he wants us to share in the blessings of being fishermen. His command to his first disciples when he said, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you think that command is for you and I as well? It is. That his, his command to them is the exact same command that he gives to all of us. The command to be fishers, of, to follow him and to be fishers of men. So the call to catch fish in evangelism is extended to everyone who belongs to Christ. So we, the called ones, are intended to become the callers. Now in your notes, I tell, I'm not going to read through that, but I give you a little story about an Italian man who uh, lived his life as a recluse and, and died and they all thought he was poor, but they found he had hidden all kinds of violins in his bureau drawers and dressers and uh, dresser drawers and in his attic. It's really kind of a sad story, but uh, the, the uh, read it because the uh, main punch of the story is that you and I are to lead our lives so that we shine and share, not that we hide and hoard that which the Lord has given to us. The statistics say, and this was years ago that I got this statistic, and I don't know if it's wor- it's probably even worse, but statistics say that 95% of Christians never lead one person to the Lord Jesus Christ. 95%. And then I give you another little um, article that I got out of a 1985 Gideon magazine, which is really worth reading. If you have not read this Previously, please do read it as by a man named John M. Drescher. Very, very convicting article. And he, he follows it up at the end by saying, is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Well, let's talk about the qualities that make up a good fisherman. The Lord was teaching his disciples throughout his public ministry. He was teaching them by his example, how to be good fishermen. And I think it's interesting that many of his disciples were already fishermen. You know, they were fishers for fish, so they understood these principles, and now he's going to turn them around so that they would be fishers of men. But we know the Lord was a good fisher of men because we've already seen that. He fished for each of them, right, <laughs> initially, and brought them in. And then we saw how wonderfully he fished for um, um, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well and the nobleman whose son he healed. And throughout his ministry, we'll see this over and over again, how he illustrates to us the great principles of being a good fisherman. A good fisherman, first of all, needs to be patient. Very, very patient. 
A fisherman realizes, a good fisherman realizes, that it can sometimes take a long time to catch a fish. Is that true? That's why I am not really a good fisherwoman, because I am not very patient when I am waiting for a fish to bite. So I need to learn that in my spiritual life, you know, not to be impatient, to be patient. But uh, any time I've ever gone fishing with my husband, Ooh, I get so impatient because I, I think, why am I sitting out here in this little boat when I have all, wasting time when I have all that work to do? And all, or I could be doing this, or I could be doing that, or et cetera. I am not a good fisher. And because, well, I guess, you know, I don't even like to put the bait on the hook. He puts the bait on the hook for me. I don't like to take it off the hook, and I don't even like to eat fish. Well, I certainly don't like to clean fish. And I'm not really a big fish eater either. So what's the purpose? <laughs> also, a fisherman must have uh, perseverance because fishing is not just a matter of waiting patiently in one location for the fish to show up and bite at the bait. Fishing also involves going, sometimes, going from one location to another without, in some cases, ever catching anything. One of our... Um, a deacons in our church, actually his wife is one of our leaders in the Bible study, Patty Hudson. Her husband went fishing with five other men, um, was it last weekend? Anyway, they, they were gone like three days, six men, and the whole weekend they fished, and <laughs> one of them caught one fish. <laughs> I told him, I just heard that, so I said, I'm talking about fishermen, so I'm going to have to give you as an, exa- an example, but they persevered <laughs> anyway, they kept at it. Uh, um, but So it often involves going from one location to another. I know when I was uh, first married to my husband, he took me fishing on Thaggart's Lake over in Whispering Pines because his mother used to live there, and so we could launch a boat out and go out there on the lake. And I wondered, because growing up in Chicago, I never went fishing in my life. But why do you keep moving around? Well, he'd go to this spot, and then we'd be there a few minutes, and then go to another spot, and he'd say, well, the water looks a little darker here. There's probably a school of fish there. You know, or there's some brush over there. And in and, and our pond, we have a pond behind our house, and he's always throwing dead trees and, and uh, things down into the lake because that's, he says that's where the fish like to go to hide from the turtles and whatever else is in there. And, uh, and so he, you know, he perseveres, but it, it, you have to go from one location to the other location. And, and uh, a fisherman has to know where to go to catch the fish. Right? And he has to be persevering. Also, a good fisherman must have good instincts as well as patience and perseverance. He must be sensitive to his own inner leading as to where the fish, as I said, might be found, when it's time to go to another place, and uh, what time of day is best to go fishing, and whether it's best to cast in a line or a net or... Um, fly fish or, you know, whatever, whatever type of fishing they're supposed to, to use for, to catch certain fish, they have to be sensitive to all of this and know it. So timing and sensitivity to the, to the Spirit's leading. Remember, we're talking spiritually here. Timing and sensitivity to the Spirit's leading is critical for a good fisher of, of men. Many a fisherman has lost a good catch, both of fishes and of souls, because of a lack of proper timing. Is timing critical when we're trying to win souls? Yeah, there's certain seasons in people's lives and certain times maybe when they're in the middle of a trial or a tragedy when people are more sensitive and more um, 
allured to the, to the bait of the cross of Christ than at other times. Also, speaking of bait, a fisherman must know what type of bait to use for which type of fish he desires to catch. Now, when our, my husband and I went on our honeymoon, this is an interesting story. Um, my husband's boss at the time that we were married told him, I will pay for your honeymoon. Now, wasn't that nice? It was really nice. He paid for our whole wedding and our reception, and then he also paid for our honeymoon. Really nice. <laughs> and he said, uh, you can go anywhere in the world. And you know how love is so blind. I said, oh, Frank, you can decide where we want to go. I said, well, maybe we can go to the French Riviera or something. No, it was silly of me to give him that choice because he decided we would go piranha fishing on the Amazon River. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I said love is blind because I went, and um, and we we had to use for bait raw chunks of beef because that's what piranha go for. You have to know what kind of bait to use for what kind of fish, and they go for raw chunks of beef and they go for it fast. I could have probably just fished with my thumb. They were <laughs> this. Frank and I are out in the middle of the Amazon River in a canoe with no life jackets and a canoe. The Amazon where we were was Manaus, if anybody's ever been there. It was so wide that you could not see across it. I mean, you know, the Amazon is very wide at some places and then it gets narrow. Where we were was very wide and we're out there in a canoe. I mean, was I stupid or what? <laughs> and we're with this little native boy. He was our guide. And uh, he begins to tell us in his broken English about what's down in the water. <laughs> and he says, you know, about the piranha and alligator. He actually caught an alligator for us and opened his jaws. I have a picture of him standing there with the jaws open. And, um, and then he told us about a, a piraracu. How many of you ever have heard of a piraracu? Anybody? I hadn't either, but it's the size of a whale. And it was down in there, and it could swallow a man whole. But I threw my rod out there and instantly got a bite, but I didn't, I didn't know how to reel it in fast enough. And by the time I got that poor little piranha into the boat, he was half eaten from the other ones. <laughs> anyway, I could tell you more stories, but I got to get on with my lesson. <laughs> so anyway, they, he, has to be, he has to know what type of bait to use for what type of fish. There are certain types of bait that draw certain types of fish. You know, when you fish for, for souls, some people are more drawn to the, to the love of God. Some are drawn to the, um, the judgment. You know, we have to know what type of bait to use for the fish, so we have to be sensitive to that. Fishermen must also have courage. And this is especially true for those fishermen who go out into the depths of the sea where they frequently face considerable danger from storms. Furthermore, fishermen must keep themselves out of sight as much as possible. And this is what my husband tells me whenever I go fishing with him. And this is, again, where I have a problem because I think, well, if I'm going to sp spend time with my husband out in the lake, maybe we can catch up on communication. <laughs> no. <laughs> the minute I open my mouth, the fish will hear you, and then they won't come. You see, it's easy for us to get, to get in the way of our witnessing to the lost and to cause people to see or hear too much of us. Fish won't come to the bait if they see or hear too much of the fishermen. 
just as men won't come to the cross of Christ if we get in the way and obstruct their vision by you know, presenting too much of ourselves. So a good soul winner will keep himself out of the picture as much as possible. All right, I'm going to be in trouble. Whoa, principle of appropriation. It's interesting to notice that in the Lord's object lesson, lesson on evangelism, he used the disciples' equipment. Right? He used their boats, he used their nets, he used their energy. You know, it was their rowing strength that got them out to the middle of the sea. And it was by their strength that the nets were lowered and then pulled in and taken back to the shore. So he used all of their equipment and all of their energy. He was teaching his men uh, the principle, the biblical principle of appropriation. He will appropriate that which men and women are willing to yield to him. Furthermore, he will not only use those things that we yield to him, but oftentimes he will take those things that we yield to him and he will do what with them? He will multiply them. Who do you think of? I, think, I always think of the little boy with the uh, two fish and the five barley loaves. He was willing to yield what he had to the Lord and the Lord took, took it and miraculously multiplied it, just like he did in this miracle. They were willing to yield their ships and their boat, their nets and their, and their time and energy. You know... That had to be hard for them because they had been out all night fishing, which is a lot of work, throwing those nets out and dragging them in. Even if they weren't full of fish, but they didn't catch anything. But they would get full of other things that they'd have to clean out and throw back in. And it's, they're, they're waterlogged, so those nets are very heavy. They, of course, they had to row all the way out to the middle of the lake. And then they had come back in. They'd been out all night. They were tired. And they have to clean their nets. After they drag them back up on the shore, they have to clean out all the sand and the stones and, and um, seaweed and uh, other sea creatures that they don't want. It takes a long time to clean the nets and mend them. We saw James and John, I think, were the ones mending nets because they'll get torn, they'll get snagged on a rock or something, and they're constantly having to mend the nets. So anyway, they were tired. The only thing that they probably wanted to do at that point in time was go home. And yet here comes the, the, the Lord's with them, and he says, launch out again. So they have to go through that whole process all over again. And yet they were willing to do it. And he took what they were willing to yield to him, and he um, multiplied it. So he was teaching them about the principle of appropriation there. Then there's the principle of submission. After the Lord finished talking to the people, and what he spoke to the people using that ship as his pulpit, we don't know. We don't know what he taught him because it's unrecorded. But after he finished speaking to them, he told Simon Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Now, from Peter's response to the Lord, we learn about this next principle, the principle of submission. Because Peter said, Master, you can imagine he said it kind of tired, Master, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, that was a good thing for Peter to say, wasn't it? Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. You see, the Peter apparently knew enough about the Lord to know that it was important to obey him, even if the command made no sense at all to him. You know, they'd already, as I said, they'd already toiled all night and they hadn't caught anything. And night was a time when they would have caught something. Because you see, what the fish do is um, when, when the sun comes out or when it's dark... They, um, they come up in the water. They come to the, the, the surface, closer to the surface of the water to be warm, to be warmer. So at night would be the time that they would catch the fish. That's why they were out fishing all night. They were professional fishermen, and they knew this. But when the sun comes out, what do the fish do? 
Yeah, they go, they get away because it gets too hot up there, so they go down into the cooler waters and they go down lower in the lake where the, the nets don't go all the way to the bottom of the lake, you know, where they were out in the middle was about 160 feet deep. So they couldn't catch any of the fish that were way down lower. So Peter's obedience is um, magnified when we understand this. He, as a professional fisherman, was obeying the Lord, even though, though he knew what the Lord was telling him to do, was contrary to fisherman logic. And then again, think from Peter's perspective, the fact that he is a professional fisherman, and who is telling him how to fish? A professional carpenter, you know? (laughs) So... Peter obeyed anyway, and as I said, he was abundantly, they were all abundantly blessed for having done so. If, if we, I want to talk about this a minute because I think this is important. I'm trying to finish up here, but it, you know, a lot of times people come to us, we're talking about their call to service. So let's talk about that a lot because I get quit people, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit because I have a lot of people that come to me and say, well, how do I know if it's the Lord's will if I serve in this certain capacity? You know, I'm talking about Christian service. And I know at our particular church right now, they, we have a nominating committee, and they're going around asking people if they'll serve in this area, if they'll serve in this Sunday school, etc. How do you know if a call to service is just a, to fill a need or a demand of men, or it, if it's just kind of to satisfy your own flesh, your, yourself, or if it's a command of God? How do you know? Well, there are five questions that I, I want to give to you, and I'm I think I only had, well, maybe I have all five in your notes, but let's just go through these really quickly. I think these questions help us to test whether an opportunity for Christian service is God's will or if it's, a, you know, if it isn't God's will. One question, and this is the most important question to ask, is does filling this opportunity for service agree with Scripture? That's very, very important. Does it agree with scriptural principles? For example... I would not even have to pray about it if a men's Bible study came to me and asked if I would be their teaching leader or if if I was asked to go and teach a men's seminar. I would know that that would be contrary to 1 Timothy 2.12. Nor would it be in accordance with a biblical principle if a uh, youth pastor took his youth group to a heavy metal rock concert. I mean, you know, you wouldn't even have to to pray about that one. You, you need to, first of all, make sure that what you're being called to do agrees with the scripture. Secondly, does the opportunity for service agree with your particular circumstances? For example, um, if somebody came to you and asked you if you'd be willing to be a missionary to China and you still had uh, uh, young children in, no, that wouldn't, Well, let's say they ask you to be a missionary to China, which would entail you having to leave young children here or an invalid husband. Would that agree with your circumstances in life? No, it wouldn't. Um, What about if they came to you and asked you if you would teach the book of Revelation and you've only been a Christian for two weeks? (laughs) That would probably not agree with your circumstances. All right, third, does this opportunity for service involve your particular spiritual gift and your uh, God-given natural or your God-given natural talents? I'll never forget the day that one of the deacons called my husband 
and uh, this was just right after we had started going to this church and joined the church. They called and they asked him if he would um, be our new choir director. And I, I never laughed so hard in my life because my husband is absolutely tone deaf. <laughs> he sings every song, sounds exactly the same. <laughs> the kids always say, shh, don't sing so loud. Well, they, they had gotten the wrong information, but he didn't have to pray about that. He knew the answer to that. But, you know, an opportunity for service should involve your particular spiritual gifts. And if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you need to find out. And usually other people will tell you what they are. Or your God-given natural talents. Then fourth, I'd like to spend longer, but we've got to move along. Is this opportunity a demand of men or a command of God? And that's something you really, really need to seek the Lord in. in you need to pray about that. I know I've been asked to do some things that I, that I felt were just totally a demand of people. And that I was not feeling led at all of the Lord to do. But that's something where you have to be close to the Lord, talk to the Lord, pray about it. Fifth, does taking this position or filling this opportunity for service bring a sense of peace to the soul? It does. It needs to. You need to. Um, if there's any kind of unrest, and now it doesn't count if you have unrest due to nervousness. Because I know every, every leader I've ever asked to be a leader in Bible study, um, yeah, does, has a feeling of inadequacy. But that doesn't count. You know, or if you have a fear of failure, that doesn't count. But if you have an unrest in your soul about that position, it's probably the Holy Spirit within you saying, no, this is not the position I have for you. Anyway, if we would take the time to ask ourselves these five basic questions when opportunities for Christian service are presented, I think we might help ourselves avoid a lot of mistakes and a lot of grief. You know, but if every light is green you can probably count on the fact that this is God's will. This is a God-given opportunity for you to serve him. And the result will then be not man-made man fruit. It will be his fruit. It will be real and lasting fruit. All right, in addition to learning how Christ used the principle of appropriation and the principle of uh, submission, we learn about working in harmony with other Christians, and this is the concept of the principle of cooperation. You see, when Peter willingly submitted to the Lord's command to launch out into the deep water and let down his nets, even after he'd been you know, fishing all night without catching anything, it was uh, who who performed the miracle? The Lord. The Lord. I don't know how he did it. But it shows us he has authority over even, a dominion over even the fishes of the world. Because without even speaking a word, those little fishes knew that their master was telling them to, to rise against their instinct, to rise to the higher level of the water, and to go exactly to the spot where Peter and the others had cast the net. Now the Sea of Galilee is pretty big. Which area did they go to? Right to the area where they had their nets, and they allowed themselves to be caught. Now, only God can do that, right? It's a pretty amazing miracle. But gods they just, the men obeyed. God performed the miracle. When we go out fishing for souls, we just obey. We throw out the line or the net. He does, he brings the souls into the, uh, you know, to get hooked or caught in the nets. But um, uh, where was I? Cooperation. All right, when, when Peter and the other men submitted themselves in obedience to Christ, he blessed them exceeding abundantly above all that they could have ever asked or thought. And their nets were so full, what happened? They began to break. 
And when Peter and Andrew saw their nets breaking, what did they have to do? They had to call over their partners, their friends, James and John, who were in another boat, so that they could come and help them. And even then, when both boats put the fish in that were caught, what happened? The boats began to sink. Now, the Lord Jesus could have arranged the situation so that Peter and his crew caught a lot of fish, and they knew it was a miracle, and yet it wasn't so many fish that the nets broke. Why do you think he purposely gave such a big catch of fish that their nets began to break? Why do you think he did that? So, yes, so that, whoever said that, so that they did have to involve their partners in this work so that they had to cooperate with other believers in, um, in bringing in the, the draft of fish. And that is the biblical principle of cooperation. You know, if we desire to be used of the Lord, which I'm sure everybody wants to be in this room, we must see and recognize and understand the necessity of working together with others in God's family. We, you know, we can't do it single-handedly. What if Peter had wanted to take all the glory for himself, you know, come into shore and show everybody his great and marvelous catch of fish, and he wanted to do it single-handedly so he alone would get all the glory. What would have happened? He would have come home empty-handed because the nets would have totally broke and all the fish would have escaped. Or if he even got that far, his ship would have sunk. (laughs) If two ships were sinking, his ship certainly would have sunk. You know, there's no place... Bringing in the nets is not a one-man or a one-woman operation. There's no place in the work of God for the loner or the isolated uh, recluse, the, the, the ranger who wants to just get all the glory for himself. We need to absolutely cooperate together. And who is the one who gets the glory? God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one to get the, the glory. Well, I've got to skip some things. The last principle is the principle of sacrifice. Peter immediately realized that the great multitude of fish was absolutely a supernatural work. I mean, and, and, and he, he was immediately overcome with tremendous conviction about his own unworthiness to even be in the presence of the one who could perform this amazing miracle, you know, demonstrating that he had authority over nature. And so what did he do? He fell before the Lord's knees and he cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man Oh Lord. And then in response to the Lord's to Peter's cry of unworthiness, the Lord Jesus spoke to him a word of comfort. What was the first thing he said to Peter? Fear not. Why did Peter not have to fear being in the presence of the Lord? Because he had already in faith accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and therefore he was in a right relationship with this creator, and he did not need to fear. We don't need to fear God except for reverential fear, but we don't need to fear him, you know, that he's going to judge us if we're in a right relationship with him. And so he said, fear not. He gave him a word of comfort, and he followed up the word of comfort with a word of commission. He said, from thenceforth, what would he be? Not a fisher of men. From thenceforth, he would be a fisher. I mean, did I say a fisher of men? From thenceforth, he would not be a fisher of fish. He would be a fisher of men. And then the Lord went. On, Luke went on to state that all four of the disciples—Peter, Andrew, James, and John—brought their ships to land. And what did they do? They forsook. This is in verse eleven. 
They forsook all and they followed Jesus. So in this second call of the disciples, they began the journey of learning about the principle of sacrifice, absolute sacrifice. The men left. Do you know what they left? Think about it. They left a fish. <laughs> that great catch of fish, they left it. They left it there for Zebedee or, or their other, the other fishermen to just take to market. They didn't profit from that. They left the fish. They left their fishing nets. They left their, their boats. Over in uh, Matthew's account, it tells us that James and John left their father. Of course, we, we know they left their, their occupations, their income. They left everything because Jesus was calling them to a permanent relationship to himself, which in their cases involved total forsaking. You know, it says in Luke 14, 33, So likewise, whosoever be he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. There is a high cost of discipleship, isn't there? To, to the abandonment of everything to Jesus Christ. Now the implication, let me just finish with this. The implication of this in our present day is not that you and I have to go out and sell our homes and sell everything that we possess and abandon our husbands and our, our children and so, so that we can totally follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Although this is what the Lord demanded of his original apostles because of the, the magnitude of the mission which was before them. But in the absence of the Lord here on earth, the believer is to have the attitude of sacrifice. In other words, we have to be willing to abandon and yield all possessions and all loved ones to the Lord. Are you willing, if the Lord asked you to, and everything lined up, you know, with your circumstances and, and the Bible, Scripture and everything, and the Lord asked you to... Um, to sell your home and, and go to China as a missionary. And, and it matched up, you know, your husband maybe was willing to go with you or you're single or whatever. Would you be willing to do that? If the Lord asked you to send your, to allow your son to go to a foreign country to be a, a missionary. I'm just giving you some examples. Or to give your daughter to marry a, a pastor. Or are, you, are you willing? Are you willing to lay your own life on the altar? As it says in Romans uh, 12.1, that we are to be living sacrifices, which is just our what? Reasonable service after all he's done for us. So we are to, in this day and age, we are to have the willingness, the attitude of sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to say, Lord, I'm willing to be a living sacrifice for your name's sake, and I will do anything and forsake anything that you ask of me. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for showing us these great principles on good fishing techniques. And I know, Father, that we can be saved and we can enter into your holy presence without committing to these principles of being good fishermen. But we also know that the one thing that placed these disciples in your inner circle <clears throat> and the thing that caused them to be so abundantly fruitful for your kingdom was that there came a time when they were asked to pay a price for following you, and they were willing to pay it. So, Lord, I just pray that each of us would be willing to say, all I am and all I have and all I ever hope to be, I give to you, Lord Jesus. Take it, use it, multiply it, all for your glory.
we pray in Christ's name. Amen.